Hi there, my name is Blake Probitz. I'm the managing director and co-founder of the HR tech company that built Acorn LMS. You're listening to the Strategic L&D Podcast, where we venture through what key L&D opinion leaders are doing today to ensure they are delivering a strategically impactful L&D function. Joining us on the show today is Matt Jertsen. Matt has an amazing background in learning development. He's worked as an instructor pilot in the United States Air Force, was the head of learning development at SpaceX, and he's now the chief learning officer at Better Everyday Studios. Today, we talk about a few things, including flipping your learning management cycle to start with strategic impact, why your learning budget doesn't have to dictate results, and when self-directed learning actually impedes strategic impact. Thanks so much for, for being with us on, on the show today, Matt. Um, You've got a very interesting and uh, <laughs> unique, <laughs> unique background in the in the L and D world. Um, you've worked at some fantastic companies, so I might just start by asking you: Can you just give us a little bit about you and and sort of what you've done and sort of what's brought you to to where you are today? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. Really looking forward to the discussion. Um, yeah, so my background is I started in the in the U.S. Air Force as an instructor pilot. Um, so did that for about uh, did that for eight or nine years. Um, had a lot of got, got a lot of experience teaching people, you know, very practical skills how to how to fly all over the world. Flew. I was an instructor in, in two different aircraft. Um, had a lot of fun while I was an instructor pilot. I also spent a lot of time getting really into fitness, and so I also started uh, training people how to like run half marathons. Oh, um, so so that was a lot of fun. After about nine years after duty, I, I actually I joined the Air Force because I wanted to go to space. I wanted to be an astronaut. And um, so I had been really keen on watching SpaceX's rise um, early on. And so when the opportunity presented itself for me to uh, bow to my active duty service, I, I took it and wanted to find my way into SpaceX. I didn't know how I was going to make it there. I always like to say I I jumped out of the plane and just hoped I would find a parachute on, on the way down. Um, and sure enough, I did. I, I managed to connect with a, um, a person who was running one of their launch sites. And it was just kind of, you know, the this typical, like, I'll do anything. What do you need any help? What, what can I do for you? And he said, well, you know, we're, we're really looking for some help with training. Have you ever done anything like that? And I was just like, uh, sure. He's like, yeah, I, I think I can do that. You know, I, I never thought in a million years that the the like instructor title of all the things that I had done would ever be what I would continue to do. Um, so that was kind of my entry into corporate learning and development. Uh, fast forward uh, about 14 months and I moved down to LA from one of their launch sites and took over the, the training development team in, in HR at headquarters here in LA. And I mean, I just, I just fell into the, into the rabbit hole. I just, uh, you know, completely fell in love with, with all things learning development. Uh, I, I can't, uh, you know, can't express enough how, it, how important I think it is and how critical I think it is for, for organizational success. So I, I was at, at space, got, got to do a little bit of everything um, in L&D, orientation, content creation, uh, live facilitation, just the whole, the whole thing. Uh, I was at SpaceX for four years, left SpaceX for another startup, uh, and then relatively recently uh, started my own L&D consultancy, Better Everyday Studios, where we now, we, are, we, we like to say we, we help build learning solutions that deliver business results. Um, so we, we work with our clients um, rather than on a project basis, more on like a, a long-term uh, month-to-month agreements where we um, 
you know, really try to dig in and understand the challenges that they're having and, and help them solve them. Yeah. Wow. What, what, what an amazing, uh, amazing story you've got. It's, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's pretty wild. Some, some awesome institutions though, but obviously at the, um, sort of at the cutting edge, I guess, of, of learning and development and, and, and engineering and technology. Um, it's super interesting that you mentioned, so you, you sort of left to, to start your own startup, focusing on that um, sort of, you know, driving business results and business outcomes. How, how do you, how do you sort of align that learning um, with those business outcomes? How, how do you, how do you do that for, for, for the people that you're working with? Yeah, I think, I mean, classically, you know, I, I think most people or a lot of people have, have probably heard of the, you know, traditional like Kirkpatrick levels of analysis where when you're, when you're analyzing learning results and, you know, level one is, you know, did they enjoy it? How, how was the engagement? Level two is about uh, learning. Level three is behavior change. Level four is the, is the business impact. And I, I think it's critical to just take that from the very beginning and do it in reverse. You know, you start by identifying the business impact that you're trying to achieve. Then you work backwards and say, okay, to achieve that business impact, what behavior do we need to change in order to get that business impact? Then, okay, what knowledge do people need? What learning do we need to provide for them to change their behavior? And then what? how do we create an engaging situation so that they achieve that learning, right? Like, I think that, you know, that, that backwards approach is, is one of the ways that I, that I kind of approach it. I think, I think the biggest thing, honestly, is really trying to make sure you're not taking on things that learning can't change. Um, you know, doing that proper analysis, not just assuming that there's a problem. I think very often in plenty of organizations, you know, uh, learning is like the go-to thing. Oh, we need training. Oh, we need this thing. Um, and really it's a mask for um, often either, you know, uh, not great management or leadership practices or improper resourcing. You know, those are probably two of the big ones. Uh, probably the third one is, is, is poor documentation. Um, you know, but I think it's, you know, going, going through it in reverse of starting with the business outcome and then working backwards and then really trying to make sure, you know, honestly looking at the problem and yourself in the mirror and, and kind of saying like, can we do anything about this? <laughs> is this a learning problem? Um, that, that's how I, some of the ways that I like to approach it. Yeah, that's amazing. Do you, do you find confronting those brutal facts is very different between you know, those large organizations that you've worked at, like, you know, the Air Force or or someone like a SpaceX who have thousands of employees across across everywhere? Um, and then you mentioned, you know, you've worked with startups, and I'm sure you work with an array of different um, clients now. Do you find there's a big difference between finding those business results and driving that in the large orgs and the, and the smaller orgs? Or is it sort of those fundamental truths of fundamental truths? I don't know if it's if it's so much organizational size as it is just differences in individual personalities. Yeah. Um, but then, but, but then very often, you know, different personalities kind of migrate to different sizes or types of organizations. Probably, you know, um, there's certainly going to be very scrappy um, and you know forward leaning people in very large organizations. Uh, but you're probably just going to get more of them in in a smaller organization, mm. um, you know. But I think it has, if if anything, I would say it has a lot to do with um, you know the where people are coming from, what their background is. You know, if you uh, come from uh, honestly HR and you know uh, environmental health and safety, very often like very regulatory driven kind of. Uh, s systems where um, there's lots of rules that say what you can and can't do. And so it's a lot easier for somebody to come up in those in that environment and 
be thinking much more programmatically of just like we just give them the information they have to abide by the information this is the way it's been done kind of thing um and then there's other other places um where they're much more open to experimentation you know spacex was very open to experimentation i think in, in large part because that's what they do that they're very they, they, they're very ex they, they do a lot of experimentation i i also think um you know the startup world tends to have to face up to the fact that they often don't have a lot of money <laughs> you know it's, it's a very brutal reality of like look we got to achieve we got to do things and so sometimes that can help people um uh focus on things a little bit yeah I, absolutely and and do you find that um i guess it sounds like there's a little bit of overlap there and, and probably some differences and whatnot um but organizations that have that high experimentation um and then startups do you, do you find there's a sort of a different method of prototyping to sort of work out hey maybe we don't have a budget or maybe we need to work this out really quickly um, to sort of, you know, come, come to a conclusion of, of what training they do need or how to, how to construct that training. Yes, I do think so. I mean, I think, you know, if you're a big organization with a big budget that's used to operating slowly, then it's like, why not shoot every, all video in 4k and why not, you know, go with the, uh, you know, $35,000 custom video commercial thing, you know, I mean, it's just, it's kind of like the, why not? Um, where when you take that off the table, I mean, I always, I remember I've, I've had this discussion before around, you know, the like budgets and government. And, and I often say that like budget cutting is where, is where the magic happens from an innovation perspective. Cause as long as you have increasing budgets and growing budgets, it's always, why not, you know, <laughs> like, why not do, do more? Um, why not do what we did plus more, um, and when your budgets are cutting, then you really have to just be like, oh, okay, we need to just do different things. So, I mean, I think especially um, that was what I wanted to start with. You know, when I, was, when I was at SpaceX, we were a very small team that had to be very scrappy. We were making a lot of content. Um, and so we had to look very closely at like, okay, how do we make content as fast as possible, as cheap as possible, that is achieving some desired result. And the great news is, is there's lots of neat tools out there today. You know, things like Vyond for animated videos blow away timelines uh, when it comes to animate making making an animation. Um, maybe it's not quite as precise as if you're in Premiere or After Effects and all that all that kind of a, the the Adobe world. But it's 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 what you need. It's it's good enough. It's good enough for, for what you need. And so I think um, you know when I when I first started thinking about uh, creating content uh, for others, because honestly I start I started doing content creation on the side um, while I was still a, a full time employee at places, and it was really with that focus. It's like how do we you know Pareto principle 80-20 rule this thing uh, when it comes to content so that we I can show people that even if you don't have a big budget, even if if you don't have a big timeline, you can still get what you want. You can still make make um, stuff for yourself. Um, and so certainly in the startup kind of scrappy world, it's a lot easier to have that discussion because they're already in that space of scarcity. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. And I guess that that sort of necessity is the mother of invention kind of a principle. Absolutely. Is, Absolutely. Yeah, because <laughs> um, yes. I think in an uh, in an earlier chat that that you and I, I had briefly, uh, you mentioned that there was three of you, and I think seven thousand SpaceX staff. Yes. That you'll be yes. Paying for. So like, um, yes. anyone listening, it's not you know this wasn't a couple of, a couple of, of people that the training was produced. It was just seven thousand people. Um, yes. <laughs> yeah, that's 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 absolutely wild. 
when, when, when you're doing that, have you found that you've had to sort of produce like a business case to, to sort of get some of those, those things approved or um, how, how did you sort of go about, I guess, getting the endorsement to, to sort of go, okay, we do need a bit of, you know, we need a bit of cash or a bit of something to, to make this happen. And, and how, how did you sort of formulate, I guess, that, that internal argument to go, Hey, we, you know, we, we want to get some of this training done. Yeah, I think when it comes to creating business cases, the the key is to not try not try to reinvent the wheel. You mm-hmm. know, you're if if you got to go with what the organization already cares about. So, what is the language that your organization speaks and your leaders speak? And then you need to figure out their language, uh, even if it's not your background. That's what you have to figure out. And you know, so uh, if your company, which has generally been my experience, is about efficiency and um, you know saving time, saving money so that we can get the mission done, then that's what you need to focus on, you know? And so I spent a lot of time showcasing how, you know, revising these trainings is going to save X hours per year or, um, you know, getting a new learning management system that's going to be better able to target who needs to take what, you know, it's, it's honestly flipping on its head what a lot of organization learning organizations do, where rather than focusing on, how much time are we spending learning? It's like, how are we going to reduce time spent learning? Yeah. You know, if you can, if, if you can, especially on compliance stuff, you know, if, if you can cut your time spent learning in half and there is no visible change in the business, then that was probably a success, you know? <laughs> um, and especially, and we all, we've all seen even the courses that we create and we know that, you know, if you go back and look at something you create, you created a couple of years ago and you're just like, oh man, that, that didn't need to be there. Or I could have like cut this here. I didn't need to do this. Or this could have been a little bit more streamlined. And so there, especially in large organizations, there's, there's so much opportunity um, for, for, uh, for cutting that time. Um, and then I think the other place where I've had the most effect, being able to make the most effective kind of ROI and, and business case that ever, that's going to be true kind of anywhere is around onboarding and on-ramping. And even if it's not specifically onboarding, it's, it, it's the same thing for promotions and, or, you know, taking on a new role, just ways that you can try to show that you are uh, lo- limiting the time to fluency, if, if you will. You know, if you can speed up that process for getting somebody uh, to be kind of like a minimum viable employee, if if you will, um, or <laughs> maximum, you know, if you can go, if you go, go one more, you know, I think for a lot of people, a lot of organizations, let's be honest, like your, your, what you're trying to do is just get somebody so they can do the job, you know, like mm-hmm. they've signed into everything, they've got access to everything they need. That in and of itself is a big feat because as we continue to onboard more systems and get and coordinate more, just teaching people what systems to use, how to talk to one another, is a pretty big feat. Um, So if you can say we do that in the first day instead of the first three weeks, then that's huge. And then you can move on to like, okay, how do we make these people maximally effective as fast as possible, Um, which are all great, great um, ROIs. Yeah, that's amazing. I, I love that saying, um, spend less time training, because it is so true. Like, I think the there's a big, such a big focus on, oh, no, we need to spend X amount of hours. And it's like, well, you need to get the result from the most efficient means kind of a thing. And, and yeah. so we don't necessarily need to allocate X amount of time. Um, it's more about, hey, how do we get this 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 result? So I really like that. I think it's uh, <laughs> a little bit different to the standard days. But what For, sure. For sure. Have For you, sure. For sure. Have you found many... Um, 
uh, or, or what, what what are the best sort of examples of, of activities um, that you've actually seen that you've pr produced or seen somebody produce, um, you know, in, in that career that, that you've got that spans across all sorts of organizations? Is there any like learning activities that you see be really effective for, for certain types of training, um, more so or less so than others, maybe? I think I think it really depends on um, you know when it, if we if we break out of learning modalities. I mean, I think one of the, one of the key things that I would say that I've that I've seen work really effectively when it comes to taking like e-learning and and making it more effective and, and minimizing that time. The thing that you want to do is you know because like compliance training or really any knowledge training is one of the things that we do, especially as we talk about micro learning, is we like break things up into their individual components, right? And so you know if you think of safety training, the classic thing is you have a course on like slips, trips, and falls, and you have a course on personal protective equipment, and you have a course on, you know, climbing ladders and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And when you look at the whole suite of those things, and you take a step back, you can see through lines from them all, you know, like quality courses is an example, you know, in, in space, um, you know, obviously in aerospace, quality control is a huge issue. And um, there'll be different kinds of it. There'll be a course on uh, foreign object debris and damage. There'll be a course on uh, electrostatic discharge and damage. Um, there'll be just like a quality policy course and all be separate courses because they're touching on different people. But strangely enough, like all of those courses will all start with like the same video of a rocket blowing up because yeah. of poor quality, you know? And so everybody's seen it, like seeing that same video like four or five times. And that's your clue of, hey, if I'm, see if I'm, if I'm using like the same intro every time or, you know, there's probably some kind of through line here here that, that gives you that chance to, to condense and, and bring, bring things together. Um, you know, that being said, since I mentioned e-learning, I, I think you really want to understand, you know, what are you trying to do? I love e-learning. It's like what we do, but you need to understand what it can and can't do, right? Uh, you know, e-learning, the traditional e-learning really is still about knowledge transfer. And I like to think in an ideal world, it's almost always purely preparatory. Right. It's so that before someone goes into the classroom, it's, um, you know, they they already have the, the, the vocabulary, they already have some of the basics down. And so then the instructor doesn't have to waste time going through all that, all that stuff. Because um, I think, and ultimately, like, what's the most effective medium, it's going to depend a lot on, on where someone is actually doing the job, where they're applying the knowledge. Context is incredibly important for, for effective learning. Um, and so I think it really kind of goes back to that beginning of just like we're spending a lot of time in the business learning what are the outcomes they're trying to achieve and really under understanding that kind of stuff, how, figuring out how to speak their language. The same thing with the learners that we're trying to serve, right? And I think every, people talk about that a lot of really, you know, keeping the learner in mind when you're designing it and trying to design stuff that can be consumed wherever they're at. Yeah, that that's that's so true. And, and that context super important right because if you take somebody out of out of the workplace and put them in a completely different environment maybe the training's a little bit different than if they are in the workplace how do you find the best ways to get some of that context in and and how important do you see that context for the training uh sort of becoming or being um to to that that end, end employee or, or learner 
Yeah, um, it's critical. Like it's so, so critical. You know, I, I, I think w when I think about behavior change, um, I always think about three principles of specificity, connection, and, and context as, as being really important. And actually after we, we had a discussion the other day where we were talking, you asked me about habit forming. Um, and so I went to look up uh, James Clear, you know, the, the author of Atomic Habits. And, and he has these four stages of habit forming. And the first stage of any habit is always the cue right? It's the cue to performing the behavior. And that's really what context is. What are the things in the surroundings that are going to get somebody to do it? You know, we are evolved to remember things and act differently depending on the, our environment, right? That, that's, that's how we're evolved. Mm -hmm. um, and so that can be everything from you know, making sure the the colors and logos match, although that's pretty that that's a, a light one. To more importantly, I think, is making sure like the language is real. That's one of the th yeah. things that I think is most we're losing in a lot of though. Though plenty of people are getting better at when you see AR and VR solutions for practicing. Um, for, for practicing feedback and, and stuff like that. So many of these things, because it's still not that necessarily that easy to produce, they're, they're pre-produced kinds of things. I think I've seen, I, I know somewhere there's like Tony Dungy or you have relatively famous people on the other side talking to you that you're, that you're given a, um, you know, you're given feedback to. It's like, well, I'm, I mean, I'm not going to be giving feedback to Tony Dungy or an NFL coach or, or somebody, you know, like um, that, that's not who it's going to be. And they're certainly not going to be speaking the same language. And so that was one of the benefits that I've seen in the past when, you know, in most of the workplaces that I've been at where we, you know, some people would see it as the hindrance that we had no budget and we couldn't go outside to get everything. That mm -hmm. meant we had to make everything ourselves. That meant everything was true to us. You know, when we were give, teaching managers how to give performance reviews and we were creating like fake performance reviews for them to talk through and give feedback on, it was like a real looking performance review that was true to SpaceX that had our language in it. You know, so look and feel is important. Language is, is really important. Um, and then environment is, is really important. You know, I think we need to stop taking people to off-sites to do all their learning. You know, they get really good at giving feedback out in a hotel uh, conference room, but then they're a, they're a production supervisor and they're out on the factory floor and everybody's yelling and cussing and it's loud. And of course, they're not <laughs> going to be good at giving feedback, you know, so let's, let's be real and, and put it where it needs to be. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That, that's amazing. And I, I think, that goes to what you just said there around um, how it was, it's true. It was true to you. And, and when you made that training um, because of the breadth of it and the scope of it um, and, and the resourcing you had that, that you, you guys made it, you know, it didn't come from off yeah. the shelf and, and that meant yeah. it was, was real well. I feel like if the rock was, was giving me feedback, I would probably be a little bit like, Oh, okay, this is, this is a bit different. You know, this is a, yeah, this yeah. Is a bit normal. Yeah. yeah. And it's, and, and the, the crazy thing is, is that it, it probably gets great reviews. Right. Oh, when course, you look, yeah. if you, if you have a survey afterwards, this was so, oh my gosh, this was so amazing. Um, but I, I remember years ago, there, there was a study that was done uh, where they took, I, I forget where the study came from, but they took a couple, two different cohorts of math students and they used two different approaches to teaching the math students. One group of students, and these were like grade, grade school, I forget, you know, like, like sixth through eighth grade or something. Um, and one group of students, they taught them in a very linear fashion where they would teach, you know, some, you know, addition for 
a half hour, and then subtraction for a half hour, and then something that you know they 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 would block it out and teach it very linearly. And then in the other cohort, they would mix it up. Every question was different, every scenario was different, so they really had to bounce back and forth. And the the key thing is that afterwards, the group that was taught linearly rated the course way better like oh they had more fun they were more they, they could understand everything the other group said how they were, it was you know it was hard to follow sometimes it was confusing it was really difficult but then when they got put on the test the group that had rated the course lower scored better oh wow yeah right which which makes sense you know if you if you think about you know physiology and training you know you know anybody who's who's trained and, and tried to work out you know it knows that like it's hard. If it's not hard, <laughs> you're not improving. And the same is true up here, right? And so I think it's after that study, it made me kind of rethink, like, maybe we shouldn't be going for five-star reviews on everything. And I, and I would suggest, especially in like in-person or really in encounters that are meant to be engaging and pushing people, if, if you're getting five stars, you're probably not pushing enough you like you should have some people that were like eh, I felt a little uncomfortable or oh this went a little too fast maybe maybe as long as you have a way to catch people up you know but I think it's something to think about yeah that that's that's a really good point and I think that that um that pops up in other arenas as well sort of being uh, as you know we're from the software world and um when yes. you when you when you sort of develop software that's one of the things that uh we we learned um from from going and talking to some people who had done it in some very big locations they sort of said hey it's okay for some people not to like some stuff it means you're actually experimenting don't be scared of failure like um you know if, if it's all perfect that means that it's not as good as you you, you can be so i don't i 100 resonate with that and, and yeah totally yeah agree. um and absolutely. you know perfection right like it's not it's not going to happen nope Yep. Yep. Absolutely. And there was, uh, since, you know, I came from SpaceX, I'm still a huge SpaceX fan. I, I follow a lot of uh, videos of, of Elon online. He does these great tours of, of Starbase where they're building their next, their next rocket. And a recent video, he talked about how, just how zealously they try to simplify and like remove components from systems that they're designing. And he has this tenant that's like, if you're not adding back in at least 10% of what you remove, then you're not removing enough. Kind of saying right. that like, like you should err on moving too much and having to correct yourself, you know? Um, so in learning situations, probably a little bit different because we're dealing with people and, and you know, we don't want to uh, push anybody too far. We want to make sure we're bringing everybody along. But I think it highlights that, like you said, in, in all realms where like, um, you know, we want to be pushing things forward. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a really interesting principle. Do you, do you find that when dealing with people, it's it's hard to sort of maybe get some of that knowledge um, transferred out? Uh, so, so you mentioned, you know, when you built that training, it was all you guys. So it was really true to you. Um, and I'm sure that meant that you leveraged what was around you and a, a great source of knowledge are the, the, the people that, that you work with and work around you. And I imagine it's somewhere like SpaceX, there might be one person, uh, one, 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 one woman who knows exactly the only way that this rocket works and she's the only person in the world that knows that uh how have you found getting that knowledge out of people who maybe don't come from that lnd background and aren't you know heavily into engineering or or you know whatever it might be across the board i'm sure the air force probably has has some things that only a few people know about um that that, yeah. that they need to pass that knowledge on sometimes yeah I, I think and that's been a big thing that i've worked uh at 
companies on and, and like with clients on is, you know, I think about it like, how do you create that content pipeline? Because I think most companies already have people internally that do really well. And like, how do you, how do you create that knowledge pipeline really of current employees to new, to new employees? Um, how do you, you know, so often, uh, learning development teams, you know, we just get stuck in this kind of order taker, just like there's so much to do. There's so many courses to create. All these people are creating content. We want to create these cool programs. Well, the answer is to empower people to create their own content for that baseline stuff, like for the knowledge transfer stuff. The goal should be for us to kind of get out of the game of creating that knowledge transfer stuff so that we can create the next level of stuff that sits on top of that. Um, I think a lot of that has to do with tools and templates, right? You know, like, so don't just publish in Storyline because nobody wants to use Storyline. You know, <laughs> nobody outside of e-learning wants to, wants to use Storyline. Um, you know, find simpler tools. Um, you know, a big one that I, that I've always loved is, is iSpring. Uh, you know, I, I think, I think, and you know, which really all it is, is it's like a PowerPoint converter, right? It's like you take PowerPoint and turn it into a, turn it into a SCORM file. And I think for most e-learning professionals, like we you know, like push that away. Like, no, well, that's what we did in like the early 2000s. We don't do that anymore. It's like, exactly. So help other people kind of do that again for that, for that baseline stuff, because there are those people who have so much knowledge up in their heads and you do actually need some, some time. You need new employees to spend some time purely absorbing some information before they can go do more, more elaborate things. Um, and so templates, I think, are key for that. Um, creating, uh, you know, slide decks or documents that really highlight, this is how you want to design a course. This is how you have the points, you know, describe what good questions are, you know, because a lot of people have either not been exposed to e-learning before, or they've had really bad exposure to e-learning. And so, you know, making people realize that the goal isn't to ask really obvious questions, right? Because <laughs> so many e-learning courses have very obvious questions. Um, you know, that's not the goal. Uh, sometimes we do it just because we don't know what else to do, but that's not the goal. Um, and so teach them how to structure a course, how to break it into different sec into sections. And then I honestly spend a lot of time talking to people about storytelling. Um, you know, because especially for people who are incredibly knowledgeable, very often they are, they are so focused on the knowledge, they're so in the books, um, and maybe that's how they learn. But the truth is, most people learn through stories, right? Mm -hmm. that, that's how we learn. That's how we remember things. Um, I had the pleasure several years ago to listen to uh, Joe Rohde talk, who was the uh, he was the head of Disney Imagineering and he designed Alani and the world of Pandora at Disney World. And he talks a lot about narrative design. How do you create a, a, a space and environment that's so intuitive that you don't need directional signs to like say, you know, go this way for this ride. You just kind of walk and you flow and you, and you everything makes sense, right? It's, it's, in, it's in the right place. Um, and you know, the same is true with e-learning. With e if you need to start your course, with directions on how to use the course, you probably pause for a second and just be like, is this, is this the right thing? Um, but I think even when it gets to that knowledge, talking people through, you know, what ha have kind of like a hero and a villain. Where is the problem? What knowledge solves that problem? What do we get once we've solved that problem? So that you can create a course that's not just a bunch of bullet points, but actually has kind of like a narrative arc to it. 
Yeah, I really, I really love what you said there um, around narrative. That's, I think that's okay, and I think it's easily, it's easily lost. And yes. um, we've all done that onboarding training. That's super generic and probably off the shelf. And it's, hey, don't plug a USB you found in the car park into your computer because who knows? Um, yes. And there's no narrative there. But if you put a narrative in there, I mean, there's some pretty cool stories. Um, yes. And and yeah, I, I I couldn't agree more with the UX and UI side of things as well. How I love that. If you've got to explain how to use it, probably it's too complicated. Let's just take yeah. a step back. You probably yeah. probably don't need to. Um, and no, and no. Granted, sometimes you know, sometimes you got to do things. Sometimes, sometimes things, thing you know. But, but I think it's, and, and I think one thing that's really important for all of us in L and D, since we're all in different places, and so many people are so into resources, is like you need to be able to hold in your heads like where you're at where you want to be and like what ideal is and those can be very far apart and that's and that's fine but as long as you have some vision and you're, and you're slowly trying to get there then i think that's what matters yeah absolutely that and the hero hero and villain is, is maybe a good arc to play there where yes yes in that gap i quite i can imagine that <laughs> on a whiteboard and someone writing yes. all right the villain is cybersecurity. security yes. Hero yes. Just, yeah do you, do you find it's hard to to manage the expectations of of the people sort of around you once you've extracted that knowledge or maybe you're working with the C-suite or something like that? Have you found that like that expectation management um, is tricky or, or or is it something that you think is is pretty easily sort of navigated? Uh, I, I, again, kind of like we talked about in the beginning, I think that's going to be very dependent on, on who, who you're working with. I, I do think there is a level of if anything, the expectation management, the, the two places where expectation management I've found are, are most critical is on the one side, um, I think people tend to, you know, you know, there's some things that you have to learn how to do, right? You just have to, you, you have to learn how to weld, you have to learn how to fly a plane. And so because you don't just normally pick it up, like it's seen as some different thing, but for things that you can everybody generally can do, it's sometimes hard for people to differentiate between being able to do something and be able to do something well. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and so I think expectation management kind of on the flip side of it is there are some people where you, you, you know, the expectation is anybody can do this. So any subject matter expert, just put them in front of the room. The subject matter expert, like they can just take care of it. Mm. Um, they, they can just, they can just do it. And so getting people to realize, talking them through, you know, the difference between good learning and bad learning and what effect it can have so that you, they understand the reason why you want to take a beat and like have that train the trainer course or have that discussion or not approve everybody to, to just give a, give a presentation. Um, I think, I think that's, that's, that's one side. And then um, what was the other side of expectation management? I think I got a lot. I was, I was talking so much on that, on that point. I think um, sometimes there's a little bit in just kind of the, the speed at which things can happen. I think that that's the other side of the expectation management um, because I, I, I think it's, I think in most cases, it's not as if people generally think that like one course is going to change the world. I think people realize that, that that's not going to be the case. Um, and so I, I don't necessarily, at least in my experience, I have not a lot of needing to manage expectations in terms of, hey, now this isn't going to solve at all because people generally, at least in my experience, have understood that. Yeah, yeah. Um... I really, yeah, I really like a, a lot of what, what you said there and, and how it's the, the difference between maybe it's not just doing it, but it might be, hey, maybe doing it well, or if we train you in a certain way, you can do it, you know, very well, as opposed to just, you know, acceptable or just doing yeah. it. 
Mm. I, I remember the other point I was going to make on expectation management. I think this is one of the most often confused points uh, for people who haven't interacted with corporate L and D before. Is they think they think learning, so they think school, so they think teacher, so they think think training. You're here to teach us. Yeah. Right. Like they kind of treat. Sometimes they can treat the learning team or the learning professionals as the subject matter experts or yep. they're looking to you to to be that person and i think that's a really important discussion to have early on is clearly identifying any project who is the subject matter expert where is the knowledge coming from that it actually doesn't come from learning and development that it comes from other people we're the ones that help take that information and translate it into something that can be easily di digestible so that it can have an impact on people but we aren't the sources of that information. I think that's honestly one of the biggest uh, kind of things that, I, that you have to work with um, stakeholders on to understand like the, the part that we play in the process. And and would you would you then sort of take uh, I guess your your part and and go and work with uh, a subject matter expert or maybe someone in the C suite to try and then align that training with a business outcome or, or business strategy? Is is that something where yes. you've seen a bit of success in the past, or is that something we know training super broad and you can go out and buy catalogs and hundreds of thousands of courses? Um, but but how do you find uh, aligning the training with actual real world sort of I guess business outcomes? Yeah, I think this is a big one where it's just like you can't, you should never have, you know, people will ask the question, like, how do you get people to buy into your learning strategy? And it's like, they shouldn't, they should be bought into the business strategy. And it's your job to align your learning strategy with the business strategy, you know, and, and, and that means it can go in many ways, you know, you, if, if the business goal is to, um, you know, get people to, think they're getting more to get people to have more benefits, you know, enjoy the benefits that the organization is offering them. They're trying to, you know, say they're trying to raise retention and a, there was a survey that they did that said, you can't, um, you know, we're not getting enough employee benefits or we want more employee benefits. And so we decide, Hey, there's going to be a subscription to this giant library of courses. That's going to be an employee benefit. Hey, that could be a reason to buy a giant library of courses to achieve a business outcome could be. Um, but more often, you're going to be much more targeted in um, the goals that you're trying to achieve, uh, measuring success by changing the business outcome, not by kind of creating your own measure of success. Yeah, I think that's something that gets lost a lot. You know, the learning strategy, it's its part of the business strategy, realistically. Yeah. So they should they should intertwine. Yeah. So it shouldn't even, yeah. uh, if it's done well, I guess it shouldn't need to, to, to be, be an argument. Yeah. Um, once, once you've sort of, I guess, you've, you've lined that up, the the final outcome is uh, people people do some training, but we we might diagnose that. However, we diagnose that, um, and that's generally done through data. And and how 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 important do you see the role of, of data within the sort of L and D landscape and L and D environment? Yeah, it really is is super critical on on many many levels. I think you know at the at the very beginning, I, I often say you know if you're a new um, learning professional in an organization, the first people you want to go get to know, in my opinion, are whoever runs the HRIS, yeah. you know, whether that's work or whatever, you need to go get to know them just so that you get to know the people data that you have available to you, because that's going to be so critical to your implementation of, of your learnings, of any learning strategy, of any, you know, you're trying to enroll people, you're trying to do that stuff. Um, you know, you need to know 
do do we actually have good uh, tracking of job titles and departments? Do we know all, all that kind of stuff? You know, so the people data is is like the foundational layer of it all, I think. Um, and then the next level is getting the business data. Who hopefully you you work at an organization where there's kind of like a business ops team or something that's already managing a lot of stuff. And so in a perfect world, you can go see. There's already people out there who are trying to track. Uh, you know, retention information, they're trying to track quality information, they're trying to track production information. So they already kind of have that stuff. Um, without that, um, you are left potentially kind of shooting in the dark, you know, just like imagine if, if you're trying to assign a course to a certain segment of the business, and you don't have job titles, you're like, I don't know, I guess I'll just assign it to everybody. Um, yeah. It's the same way in trying to figure out the outcomes that you're trying to achieve. Um, if you don't have numbers out there, then then there's nothing really to go off of. Obviously, not not everybody, none of us live in, in a perfect world. There's lots of in-betweens that, that you need to get at. And there's lots of things that you can do, you know, regarding, uh, you know, surveying different different groups of people, whether that's the learners, the managers, the peers, kind of kind of the stakeholders, whoever you need to survey. When it comes to surveys, I think the number one thing that we skip over so often is uh, baselining or benchmarking. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the the moment we identify what the true objectives are um, that we're trying to achieve, we should be pushing out some kind of survey. If we don't, if we know there's no data out there already, pushing out some kind of survey to gather a baseline that we can then try to move, you know, because maybe you push out a course, everybody says, you know, you're, you're putting out a course on company culture. Or, or maybe maybe you're even holding like a weekend event or you know several day offsite on company culture and everybody comes back saying yay I'm like you know 90% of the company is bought in well if before the event it was 95 um, well then the event actually did negative because everybody was angry that you took them away from their family for the weekend or something yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know um, so baselining is I think really really important you got to know where you're starting from. Yeah, I think that that baselining process is so often forgotten. Um, training gets rolled out and it's sort of like, well, where were we before this? And and hopefully we're moving forward, but maybe maybe we're not moving as quickly um, as, as we sort of thought. And, and yeah, and I think it, you know, there's, there's realities like, like, I like often say, you know, I've actually, I've talked with people where I was, I was, I was really excited about this sales training that I was making and I was so jazzed about it. We were making several different, there was online, there was virtual, virtual, in-person, all, all kinds of stuff we were doing. Um, and so it's like, here's what we got to do. This is what we got to do. We know we're trying to improve the sales pipeline. So we, we, we got tons of salespeople all over the place. Let's A, B test this thing. Let's put this group through it and not this group through it. It's only a two week course. These are all new hires. So we can wait. It's like, we'll have data in like a month as to whether or not this is effective. And everyone's just like, no, we can't wait that long. You know, if we, we should believe in our product and we should put it out because we believe it's good. So we just got to put it everybody. This is like, what? What other world would people do that? Like, are you kidding me? <laughs> like, we have no, no one should feel co that confident in their product, let alone us. Yeah, so. I'm, I'm a huge fan of the A-B test. Um, yeah. And I feel like you should just always, It's I know it's hard sometimes, but like, yes. just always be doing it for, with, with as much stuff as you can, because it's, I, I feel like if you build innovation into the process, um, yes. you never need to, uh, uh, I, I heard I can't even remember who said it, but I'm I'm blatantly stealing it. Um, oh, Atlassian, that was it. Uh, I was I was okay. listening to someone at Atlassian talk, and they said, 
um, someone asked them about digital transformations and said, we, we don't transform because we're never that far enough behind that we need to transform. Mm. Um, and the reason is because we're just slowly making small I love it. iterations. And I feel like I love testing it. is the, the the absolute crux of that, where it's like, yes. hey, you know, we change this little word here or this thing here and it's yes. slightly better. And, and you just you just keep on that on that trajectory, I guess. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think that that Atlassian quote, you can take take it the other way too, of like, we're never going to transform because we we're never, um, you know, we're never audacious enough to think that we can see that far into the future, right? Mm -hmm. That we're going to transform to this thing, you know, and, you know, I listened to uh, Mark Randolph's podcast a lot. Um, that will never work. Uh, he was one of the co-founders of, of Netflix. And he always, the, the thing he always says is every idea is a bad idea. You know, it's like, they're, they're all bad. Like you, no one, you don't know the answer. Like it's all bad. The only way to make a good idea is to put it out there and then see and get feedback and iterate. It's the only, it's the only way. And to your point, you know, I mean, I think most of the successful digital companies of our age, where it's uh, everything from, you know, Facebook to Netflix, they were successful because they spent an incredible amount of time very early on engineering a testing platform. Yeah, I, you know, it's famously in Facebook at fa there is no Facebook that exists, you know, at any given time, there's hundreds of different of slightly different versions of Facebook that are being tested all over the world. Um, Netflix did the same thing early on. Uh, and so are we all digital companies? No, um, especially in HR, people are very scared of, of testing sometimes because so much of what we do is so core you know you don't you don't want to test out uh you don't want you don't want to experiment with people's pay <laughs> or their or their employee benefits necessarily um but we got to find ways within some uh constraints to to test so that we can iterate and, and make it better yeah, yeah, and and I th I think HR uh, sometimes can 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 feel like they're a bit low down the totem pole, but but um uh, like like you said, I, I I don't you know there are some things you can't experiment with, but there's plenty that that you can. Yeah. Would you sort of say that the the technology stack is important for that process, or or the technology they're using is is something that they should really be be focused on and and sort of looking into? I mean, it's like asking if the car is important for a race car driver. You know, it's like, there, you know, there's so much, um, there's so many tactics, there's so much skill, there's so much training, but the car is important. Um, but similarly to take that, you know, metaphor a little bit farther, it's not clear which is the best one. You know, the car is critically important, but there's probably half a dozen, a dozen different cars that could get it done. And I think that's very true in, in, in technology as well with our, with our tech stack. It's, it's critically important to the success, understanding what you want it to do and making sure it can do it. Being able to practically uh, do it is, is really important. I always say, you know, like when I'm looking at learning management systems, I honestly look at the administration side before I look at the learner side. Um, one, because I figure if you can make the, the backend administration easy, then you probably got the learner experience <laughs> on lock. Um, but then also, that's where your constraints are. You don't know what constraints the system is going to put on you for your learning strategy uh, unless you understand the administrative side really, really well. Um, so, you know, figuring out, you know, so figuring out the, the mechanics of truly how is this going to work? 
how how can we deploy stuff through it um and then how are people going to meaningfully engage with it is is really important yeah that that's so true i, I love that quote uh if the admin side's easy the user side is uh, uh should, should 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 be probably i mean probably. Not, not always but yeah. probably yeah because <laughs> we we often um uh, we we obviously build build a lot of pages and and one day we were sort of just had this epiphany where we were like oh the user only has like maybe one tenth of what the administrator ha has to view um, so those pages they need to be really good and we actually need to focus on the user for those and and not so much the admin even though the admin sometimes is the person making the decision. Um, if you're only seeing ten pages, they need to be a phen phenomenal sort of yes. pages. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And that is one thing I think that you can get away with on the on the on the administrative side is you care much more about just the function rather than the look. You know, is it intuitive? Is it, you know, that 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 kind of thing? Um, yeah. And and do you think that uh, I guess within their technology stack um, and all of the options that administrators sort of have in that L and D environment now, um, uh, we and, and I'll, I'll caveat this with the fact that uh, I have an opinion on this and it's it's the opposite of probably most people in the industry. Um, but there's there's a huge push towards or has been a push for the past few years around you know self directed learning um, uh, and. And again, I'm caveating this so everybody knows it's not uh, Matt, Matt can answer this however he chooses. <laughs> um, we, we, we find that um, we actually don't want to do that because we think there's too many choices out there and that um, we want to align the training with strategic business outcomes and business impact. Um, so how important do you see sort of the, the guided versus self-directed training, uh, I, I guess, sort of arena, uh, if, if you will? Yeah, I think, um, you know, the key thing, the, the phrase that everybody wants or says is, you know, I want Netflix for learning or I want YouTube for learning. And I always say, like, no matter how big your organization, you are never going to have enough data points to create that, you know, billions of you know, pro probably honestly, like trillions of hours of, of views, how, how, God knows how many clicks uh, of selecting this video versus that video. Those algorithms have so much information to pull from to say, no, really, this is the video that this person wants to see. Um, we're just never going to get that in, inside of our inside of our learning systems. And so, yeah, it's always going to be um, the the paradox of choice where there's just so much, and so we just don't do. And more than just there being a lot there for people to find, I actually think in some ways it can be a little bit of a mental tax on employees yeah. to know that there is so much opportunity out there to constantly be told, go learn. You never know what you're going to achieve. It's, it's all out there. There it's, 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 um, it's really outsourcing a lot of work to them and potentially a lot of stress to them when they're, when they're already super busy, where really, again, what we should be doing is we should be saying, okay, here's the thing that we want to, that we need people to be able to do. Here's mm -hmm. the cure path in order in order to get there if people want to go discover great if if we want to now we may outsource some of that curation we don't want to say like we in learning know exactly what needs to be there maybe way we um you know if you have a big a big library of learning and you're kind of monitoring you know what do people like what do people not not like and, and pull stuff in or go talk to subject matter experts and and bring and use their information to bring people in but yeah, I, I agree with you in that um, simply saying like, here's here's the world, um, go go get it, uh, is is not 
a fully formed solution. Yeah, and it's a big world. I think what you said around the uh, the taxing, uh, I think it's once one, once you have more than seven options, you can't really make a good decision. Um, yeah, there's, yeah. there's just too too many there. Uh, we're, we're we're sort of coming up to time, and I could probably talk to you for, for forever. Uh, but I'd I'd love I'd love to just hear. Is there any sort of I guess over your your entire career, is there any sort of key key things that, that you would you would sort of want to leave people with or are there any sort of key things uh that you think hey this is something that we do that that you know really really does work that not enough people do um that we haven't haven't spoken about today i mean i think for me and this and this comes from you know my background in in flying and fitness where it's it's very tactile it's very like re real and like uh, behavioral is focusing more on behavior um, you know, we, we talk a lot about business outcomes and getting closer to the business and figuring out what they need. But my favorite, favorite, favorite question is what behavior are you trying to change? You know, you sit down with that subject matter expert and just be like, what do you need people to do differently? Because when you focus on that behavior, you know, this, so this is what I started focusing on early in my career. And that got me starting to question like, what? what is behavior, you know, and it's, it's all neurons, it's all, it's all neurons, it's all myelination. Um, and so how, you know, I, I, I like to say, you know, the book Thinking Fast and Slow uh, by Daniel Kahneman, Nobel Prize winner, like you got to read that book if you, if you want to really be effective at teaching people and driving new behaviors to drive outcomes, because it really talks a lot about how the brain works and all the shortcuts that are in here. And there's lots of really un unintuitive things. Like if you think about your, your visual cortex, most people, when they're looking out in looking out in the world, you assume that what you're seeing is the real world. But in fact, if you look at the neural connections coming into your visual cortex, 90% of it is coming from your memory, like your prefrontal cortex, and only 10% is coming from your eyes. Yeah, and, wow. so and so 90% of what you are seeing is actually just your brain making stuff up. Like it uses a couple visual cues and then it fills in everything else based on what it what it knows is there, you know, or what it what it assumes is there. And you know, that's why we've all probably had those instances where when you're driving, like you'll just be driving along kind of on autopilot. And you could go back and forth from home to work on autopilot, you know, for weeks and weeks and weeks. And then it's just one day when there's like all of a sudden there's a dog in the middle of the street. And you're like, whoa, because your brain triggered because there was something different. And, and it like shocked you out of that autopilot mode. Um, and so understanding how the brain works, how people, how that drives people's behavior um, and thinking about behavior, I, I personally think is just so critical to, to effective learning and development of really what we're trying to do is change neural pathways. That's what we're trying to do. And if we don't know how to do that, then we're, um, then we're not being as effective as we could be. Yeah, thank you. That's that's such a, a great takeaway. And I guess it sort of segues a little bit from what you said about how sometimes L&D professionals are sort of school teachers. And, and I think that's one of the downfalls of academic learning is it's it's very knowledge focused and it's not always behavioral focused. Totally. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, th thank you so much for for jumping on and, and chatting to me for for the past hour. But before you go, uh, where can people find you? Where can people find about uh, out more about you and and what you do? I know you're doing some fantastic stuff, and and you've jumped out of, of all these wonderful organizations to do your own thing. So, if anyone's interested in learning more or knowing about you, where where, where can they find you? 
Yeah, definitely check out our website, um, bettereverydaystudios.com um, is, is our website. So we're always keeping that up to date. We have a blog there. I'm super active on LinkedIn, trying to be more active, trying to get really, uh, trying to get a lot of stuff on there. So definitely check me out there. Um, you know, reach out to me. I love talking to L&D professionals. Um, I, I want to hear what you agree with. I desperately want to hear what you disagree with me on. If anybody <laughs> watches this video is like, he is wrong about this thing. I really like, I, I'm actually, I always hear, people are arguments that say like, oh, like we shouldn't try to give as much feedback as we give out in organizations and it can sometimes be negative. I like, I really want feedback. Like I, I love the thing I hate more in the world is being wrong and not being told, right? Like that's the, that's the worst thing. <laughs> um, so I would love, if, if you disagree with anything, anybody that disagrees with anything I said, please reach out to me. I'd love to have a discussion. <laughs> I wish we disagreed more. Uh, unfortunately, <laughs> we disagree not too much. <laughs> Awesome. Well, well, thank you so much, Matt, um, for jump for jumping on, um, and and thank you everyone for listening. Absolutely. Thanks, everybody. Have a great rest of your day. I'm Blake Probitz, and you're listening to the Strategic L and D Podcast, where we venture through what key L and D opinion leaders are doing today to ensure they are delivering a strategically impactful L and D function. If you want to stay up to date with our latest releases, subscribe to our podcast. We're on most common podcast platforms, including Spotify and Apple. You'll also find us in video form on our YouTube channel. Enjoy the rest of your day and we'll talk soon.